Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Today's episode features five of my previous guests, all talking about their Five of My Life songs. Brain surgeon Charlie Teo and entertainers Mary Custis, Julia Zamiro, Will Anderson and Matto Kine all tell stories that are in turns deeply revealing, moving and thought-provoking. For your uh, song, we are moving from the 22nd book of Stephen King to the third studio album of my old schoolmates, Radiohead. You are, have oh, chosen <laughs> all right. the lead single from OK Computer, which is Paranoid Android. Oh. Aside from the fact that it's one of the most uh, just amazingly written songs, it goes to so many different levels. It's a long song. You don't get long songs anymore, you know, and, and it really has just so many different layers to it. But this song really sticks to me because, you know, when I was 12 years old, my mum got a headache and uh, she couldn't really go to work and she just stayed at home for probably about two weeks. And then one day when I um, came home from school, she was sort of slumped over in the shower, collapsed in the shower. And I, you know, she said, is your dad still downstairs? Cause my dad had dropped me off uh, at her place. And, um, and I said, yes. And I ran downstairs and I got dad and dad came up and we carried mom down in a bed sheet into the car. And then we took her to hospital and she, never left hospital after that and died about three months and three weeks, sorry, later, uh, on good Friday. So on the Easter Saturday, it was the day before my birthday. So she died two days before my 13th birthday. And I, on the Easter Saturday, um, my stepmom took me to Injury shopping town to get me a birthday present. And I bought, OK Computer by Radiohead and it obviously became a album that I associated with a lot of those memories and and uh, did a lot of processing while I listened to that album. So, I mean, that song, aside from being an incredible song, um, was really important to me at a very impactful time in my life. So, yeah, I always have a very fond spot in my heart for that song. It was written about uh, an unpleasant experience he had uh, in a bar in LA. Do you, are you aware no, of that story? No, I didn't know. So he was in a bar in Los Angeles, Tom, and uh, there was a bunch of yuppies who were doing coke and drunk, and someone spilled a drink on the woman in the group, mm. and uh, she got really 
psychotically violent and deranged. Uh, and the, the line in the song, kicking, squealing, Gucci, little piggy. Mm. So it's just a direct response to being in a bar. He felt really physically threatened. Wow. And you go, he's, he's just, uh, just a genius. But I, I need to ask you a question because it's always interested me about titles. So Radiohead, their first band name was actually On A Friday. Right. And the reason it was On A Friday was at school, the only day we could practice music was... Oh, yeah, right. On a Friday. <laughs> so they were called On a Friday for four years before they were Radiohead. Wow. Right? Uh, and I'm just fascinated at the importance of titles and how you come up with titles. So the other guy, well, I could probably imagine how you came up with that one. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of... There was a lot of uh, before the other guy came out, which was the stand-up show was called The Other Guy. Yeah. And it was about, you know, um, um, a relationship where there had been cheating involved, etc. So, so weren't you tempted to call it that fucker? <laughs> There'd be too much, too much uh, joy. I think the guy would get too much pleasure out of that. Um, I, so the stand-up show was called The Other Guy. And when it turned into... A TV show. We had a huge, huge argument. Long. This this lasted weeks between myself, the other producers, the network, about what we were going to change the name to because it felt like the other guy didn't quite sum up what this what this you know this new show was about because the stand up show was all about the the relationship that I had had and the and the lead up to the discovery of infidelity, infidelity, et cetera. Whereas the TV show is the aftermath of that. So they, everyone felt, oh, we've moved on from that sort of situation. This is about rebuilding. What should you call it? And I really, really wanted to call it. And I am always regretful that we didn't get to call it this, but I'm happy with the other guy. But I always wanted to call it In Bed On Our Phones, right? Because I think that that sums up so much about where relationships are at when they are stagnant, you know, and we've, we've all been there sitting there with someone that we love and we're just not saying a word, lying in bed, looking at our phones, tapping away. And it's like, I really wanted to call it that, but too long. <laughs> so the other guy, tell me about the, um, the name of your fabulous book. Well, you know, do you want the writer's answer or the comedian's answer? I want the truth. So the truth is, I had two jokes at the time when I was writing that stand-up show. So the book is based on a stand-up show called Being Black and Chicken and Shit. It was my very first debut show um, at Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And when you're writing a show, they ask you to submit the name and the blurb, what's it about, about six months before you've written the damn thing. And I was talking to a friend. At the time, I had two really good jokes. One joke was a joke where I talk about um, people ask me where I'm from, and then I tell them, and then they act like my answer isn't good enough. And then I, they ask me again, like I didn't understand their question. So they'll say, where are you from? And I say, Brisbane. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. Where are you from? <laughs> and I go... Oh, God, I'm feeling I'm guilty. Like, <laughs> no, no, originally, you don't look and like I'm Brisbane. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I realise the question they're actually asking is, why are you black, yeah. right? <laughs> and um, the second joke <laughs> is a, uh, a joke about how, and I still do it to this day, it's 15 years old, but I, I just love doing this joke, is about how I went into a red rooster... Um, one day and ordered a chicken chips and the guy, a chicken and chips and the guy behind the counter goes, you know, quarter chicken and chips, quarter chicken and chips, but then stepped away from the register, turned to his left and walked behind into the kitchen and started making a, 
a quarter chicken and chips. And I was like watching him. I could see him through the little window. And then he boxed it all up. Then he slid it through the front. Then he, then suddenly he's like, quarter chicken is ready, quarter chicken is ready. And then the same dude came out like nothing had happened. And I was like, what? What has just happened there? You know, I still say that joke because I really, really enjoy it as a story. But anyway, when my friend, when I was calling my friend Daniel Towns about what the hell I was going to call my show, he goes, well, what do you talk about? And I said, I don't know, being black and chicken and shit. And he said, just call it that. Like he laughed. He thought it was a funny, funny name and I thought it was a funny name as well so I ended up using it for that show and that show won the best newcomer award at the Melbourne yeah. International Comedy Festival but that show also became a really sort of um, important show for me about about telling the story that I really needed to tell and telling it the way that I needed to tell it so when I first did that stand-up show I was struggling um, because I it was my very first stand-up show I was I wanted to say something important. I wanted to talk about the fact that my mum had died, but I didn't, I kept skating around the topic, you know? And I remember Ronnie Chang was blazing ahead in terms of sales and reviews and everyone was talking about Ronnie Chang. And I really, really wanted this to win this newcomer award, but by all accounts, it looked like Ronnie was going to win it. And um, I remember being really bummed out about the whole situation. I was just, I was just grinding, you know, and I came home one night and I did committed the ultimate sin. And that is to read my own reviews. Right. And I read a review that was a two star review from the age. I can't remember who. Two gave out of three <laughs> or two out of 10. <laughs> two out of five. Okay. okay. <laughs> And, you know, up until then, I'd always gotten three and a half stars from, you know, for the show or whatever. It was a very just, you know, bland response. And I remember reading this, this show, this review and becoming furious, just absolutely like pulsing with rage at the thought of, of what this guy had written because it, because he'd basically summed it up. I just, he was like, well, if he's going to talk about this, he needs to either talk about it or stop talking yeah. about it. Don't skirt around okay. the answer. Yeah. And I remember sitting on my bed this night, this is just as the last week of comedy festival starting. And I remember thinking, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to, oh, you, you want me to talk about it? All right. I'll talk about it. I'll talk about all the shit that I've always been too scared to talk about. The stuff that really hurts me and the stuff that I, you know, that I, that sticks in my mind as some of the hardest things to have to have gone through while I was 12 and watching your mum die. And, um, and so I just rewrote the ending of the show and that happened to be the week that all the judges were starting to see the show. You know, they knew that I was, uh, had an okay show. They all had to go see everyone. And, um, and from that point on, it just like changing it all just took things to the next level. So he or she did you a favour? Absolutely. Even though I still hate them. Yeah. I, I, but- <laughs> But, but I, I love that story because you, you were uh, big enough or angry enough or whatever else to actually take it on board. Yeah, I mean, it's really important to, if, you know, one of the biggest things I learned when I was writing this, the TV show um, is, it's a quote that the, this script doctor gave to us um, who was helping us out with the scripts. He said, just remember 95% of the problems that people identify with your work are correct. 95% of the solutions they give you are incorrect. And that, blew my mind as a writer, as a creative, as someone who's constantly battling, you know, opinions of producers and network people and saying, you know, no, this is right. This is, oh, you know, and they're saying, no, you need to change this. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what they meant. And now I'm realizing that a lot of people, when they're giving feedback, don't realize that they 
shouldn't be giving suggestions. They should just be focusing on the problems, you know? So now that I've realized that that's the language that people are speaking in, where when they say a suggestion, they actually mean a problem, then often I'll almost do the exact opposite to what they've suggested just as a base starting point, you know, to surprise them and to see whether, you know, so they'll say, oh, we just don't know whether you, the two characters like each other or not. Can they kiss at the end of the scene? And in my head, I'll think, no, nah, I'm going to put them at the two opposite sides of the room in a packed party full of people and all they can do is stare at each other. That's what, you know, you're going to understand it then and you're going to get that tension, but you're not going to get what you want because often people, you don't want to give people what they want. But but this, I mean, I've worked for a number of decades in the creative industry, a, d- a different one, and I think that's a, a miscommunication where what they're saying is, this is my suggestion, and if my suggestion is better than your answer, you're not very good <laughs> because because <laughs> I'm the producer exactly. and you're the comedian. Because I've thought about it for 10 minutes right. writing this email. So <laughs> beat my suggestion. That's I, it. I love that 95% thing. So I might have spotted something that's right. So... Could you go away and cleverly sort it out, please? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. That's exactly yeah. it. And Great. so it absolutely changed the game. So two things happened. I realized that, that that I need to focus on the problem and I realized that if I'm going to talk about something, I can't sit, sit on the surface. You got to go to that point where you feel uncomfortable, where you make other people feel uncomfortable, where you don't want to, you, you, you want to swing back, swim back up, but you just got to keep diving deeper and deeper. Have you read Angela's Ashes? No, I haven't. You know, the, the Frank McCourt book. I'm about, aware of it, yeah. yeah. That there's a scene in that where, uh, you know, he's, it's an Irish slum and he's got, you know, 11 brothers and sisters and they live in a, you know, one room and it's flooding and all that stuff. And uh, one of his brothers dies and he writes, I was pleased because we got the afternoon off school. Yeah, totally. And you go, wow. So that, that's somebody you go, you would write that sentence and then think, well, I can't put that in. Because what would people think of me? Exactly. And you go, but he did put it in. So I'm telling you 30 years later about, I, I put the book down and sort of, wow. A hundred percent. And that, a lot of that happens in my book um, right now where my character has to also admit the fact that he, you know, at some point when you're watching a loved one die, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people who have parents who with dementia right now who have been looking after them for five years and who are secretly thinking... I just want you to die. And that's a really, really difficult guilt to live with. But that's why I put stuff like that on the page because it does make me feel uncomfortable and it does make me feel guilty. But it's what happens when you're 12 years old and you're watching someone degrade so badly. So humanity progresses because we, we always ask questions and we're, we're curious and, and why, etc. Yeah. Uh, and that is my link to your song choice because you've chosen Annie Lennox's very first solo single yes. off her debut uh, solo album, Diva. You've chosen Why? have you chosen why there's a few reasons why the number one reason is because it was playing in the background when my firstborn came home from hospital and was in my arms and I know this sounds incredibly uh, exaggerated but as a newborn in other words she was less than six weeks old when you know you, a child normally only starts fixating with their eyes after about six weeks but I swear 
at five days of age, she was looking straight into my eyes. Is this Alex? Alex. Yeah. She was looking straight into my eyes. And she focused and fixed on my eyes and my stare while Annie, Annie Lennox's wire was playing in the background. And it was at that stage, uh, you know, it was, it was that aha moment where you realise that life is not all about you. It's it's about, you know, your legacy and your children are your legacy and all of those things. And the beauty about caring for someone else and having your DNA, you know, sort of du- duplicated or replicated. And uh, After you're gone, there's going to be a little bit of T.O. running around yeah, <laughs> forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, it was, all, and it was also that I'd met Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox and Dave uh, Stewart, Stewart came out to Sydney uh, to play at a, rock concert called Navarra and uh, that was in 1984 I think with uh, the Eurythmics and uh, yeah so I'd met Annie just briefly then we ate some food together and uh, then Dave came around so I was discarded and uh, (laughs) uh, so I have this very fond memory of Annie and so every time I hear Annie Lennox's voice it's mesmerising anyway. So so they are a fascinating couple because completely different so Dave sort of arrogant cocksure I mean both you know monstrously talented but she wrote that song when she'd just broken up uh, with him professionally. I didn't know Uh, that. Her her father had just died she'd just become a mum and she was um in paroxysms, you know, sort of drowning in a sea of self-doubt. Can I, you know, do this without Dave? And then she just cracks out, you know, an iconic classic, you know, oh. on her own. You go, it's amazing how you can be equally talented and one person goes, well, I know I am, and someone else thinks, oh, well, I can't, I can't hold a tune, I can't write a song. And you go, you're oh Annie Lennox, God. you know? Isn't that amazing? Oh, my God, I didn't know that. I just got goosebumps. Well, 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 the story. opening two lines of that song are some of the most beautiful words and singing of any song yeah, ever recorded. Yeah. And she said, I, mean, I, I, can't, I can't sing it because I, I can't sing, but she says, how many times do I have to try to tell you that I'm sorry for the things I've done? Oh, my God. To ask you, mate, uh, what are your regrets? Oh, not, you know, Nigel, no one's ever asked me that. Isn't that weird? Well, I, I, that's the five of my life, mate. How many times have I been interviewed in my life? It's like uh, you know, I've been googling you, and it's a lot. It's you're, a lot. you're not short of coverage, Charlie. No, and I like interviews because I, I'm very open, very honest, and I think that's why people like interviewing me because it's quite raw, and it's uh, they know that there's no duplicity. But no one's ever asked me that. Well, this is good. So, so, so let's stick with it. You know, force yourself to think. And you can't say none, because I won't believe you. Yeah, okay. Uh, so one comes to mind, but it's a very superficial thing. I'll tell you about that in a minute. This is something more deep and meaningful. Uh, you know, Nigel, there isn't. You, they, no, there's one, there's one thing I'll tell you about it. Okay. But it's, they always say that you regret not what you do, it's what you don't do. Right. And when I was young, I wanted a beach buggy. Yeah. I don't know why, but to me, it represented freedom and the air in your, uh, you know, blowing through your hair and uh, cheeky babes and Bondi Beach and, you know, it had all these connotations. And so as my first car, and I saved really hard to get the money to buy a first car, I really wanted a beach buggy. And people talked me out of it, saying it was impractical. 
which is ridiculous because why would you want to be practical when you're, you know, 18 years of age? And so it was the perfect time to buy one and I've always regretted it. Uh, And that's the only thing. Now, so then I, just then I tried to think about some of the things that I've done that I might have regretted. I hit a guy once. This when you were a bouncer or just? No, no, I was a bouncer at the time. So I was a black belt in karate and uh, I was pretty tough and I had a lot of testosterone going around and uh, this guy did the wrong thing, absolutely. He was, uh, so he hit me uh, purposely on my motorbike and when I saw my girlfriend uh, injured, I lost my cool Someone pulled him over because they saw the whole thing and saw how wrong it was. I ran up to his car and I beat the crap out of him. Right. I was thrown in central uh, police station in a jail, uh, in a cell with a hardened criminal. I was wearing a three-piece suit uh, and he looked at me and thought, oh my God, what a Nancy boy. He's probably in here for evading you know, traffic fines or something. So he wouldn't talk to me. So it was just two of us sitting in this cell for about half an hour where he looked at me in absolute disgust. And eventually he goes, what are you in here for? And I go, uh, assault and malicious injury. And he goes, oh, really? Bonza. <laughs> yeah, great. He's one of us. And uh, and so then he started talking to me and we, uh, I must say it was one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life where I, you know, it's a meaning of life and all that kind of stuff. And uh, because I got his respect for, because I was in for assault and malicious injury, then the police started treating me with, with a bit more respect and, and uh, I, you know, eventually got out on self-reconnaissance bail and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it was a life lesson that I don't, I don't regret. Yeah. So, so what about other things that aren't your actions, but circumstances that have happened to you? So, uh, I mean, I don't know, you, you've, you've talked in the past about uh, your parents' divorce and maybe dad wasn't the dad that you ideally might have wanted or yes. is it maybe your, your, the school you went to. I mean, I, I read something that actually brought tears to my eyes. I, mean, I, I think I sent you an email at the time going, those bastards yeah. who weren't nice to you. But do, do you regret any of the circumstances or, or you just think, well, it, it's made me the man I am, so, you know, you take the rough with the smooth? Or... You know, my upbringing was very Chinese, which is very male chauvinist. And you've got four daughters, that will teach you. Yes. <laughs> and so in terms of circumstances, I had a an odd upbringing where I wasn't uh, as respectful of women uh, as I should have been. I mean, I had a huge respect for my mother, but uh, I felt that a relationship, a male-female relationship was the male telling the female what to do. But I still find I've got that with many of the relationships that uh, my female staff, I'm often very dictatorial. My girls, I'm very sort of, uh, I, I still father-daughter, even though they're adults now. Previous girlfriends, yeah, I'm, I'm still a little bit, uh, tainted by my upbringing, that very, very Chinese, male chauvinist, male-dominated uh, type uh, relationship. Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, well, thank you for taking the question uh, honestly on the yeah, chin. But, so, again, I've never uh, been asked that question. Yeah, but, but <laughs> so next time someone does, I think you might say, you know, it would have been uh, less suboptimal if my upbringing had a more enlightened view on gender roles or something. That's really interesting to see you working it through sort of live in front of me. Yeah. We 
going to have to move on to your third yes. choice. So for your song, we're going back 10 years to 1980. It's the lead single from ACDC's seventh album, mm. the title song, the best opening riff, I think, ever of anything, mm. Back in Black. Yeah, I believe that too, and I've heard it a lot. So I, you, you open your show with it. I open my show with it. It's a, a, every show that you do. Every single show for the last decade, I open wow. with "Back in Black," and I've uh, you know to the point where I noticed the other night that people have people get that now. So I was doing a gala night where they just had you know different music in between the different performers, and I noticed as I walked on stage, they they had "Back in Black." I had not asked for it. It was just you know enough in the zeitgeist and people know now but I spoke about it in my last show were legal I actually spoke about why I used Back in Black it was the first time that I'd ever spoken about it on stage because it was integral to the story that I was telling so but the reason is and this is the story is and there was a comedian called Dave Grant uh, he was a Melbourne comedian and uh, when I first started coming through the scene he was probably you know another five or ten years more experience you know he was an established comedian already and Dave Grant was an incredibly kind performer to younger performers, a very generous performer. He was a guy who knew live comedy back to front. Like, I've never seen a better live performer than Dave Grant. You know, any room that he ever played, but he was one of those guys who, you know, he would take his own lights to gigs in the boot. He would rearrange the chairs in the room. Like, he was a perfectionist when it came to people having the perfect experience. This sight line's no good. You're going to have to move this. You're going to have to fix that speaker. You're going to have to turn the lights down here. He was a real perfectionist about every show being the best it's a bit unusual for comedians. Comedians will tend to rock up and go, oh, there is no microphone. Oh, well, I guess I'll just shout the jokes, you know, <laughs> whereas he was the opposite. He was like, no, this is a professional thing and it should be treated. You're doing a show and everything in this room should be in the perfect position for this to be the perfect show and there's no such thing as a show too small or too big. And he never quite got the mainstream success that he deserved. Now, I believe that comedy is a live art form. I believe if you watch something on Netflix or Stan, you watch someone special, if you love it, you know, if you adore it, if you think it's the best thing you've ever seen, imagine what it would have been like to see it live because you've seen about 60% maximum of what it actually felt like in the room. Live comedy is to be experienced live. You know, I what I love about, I do some improvised stand-up shows, as you know, and what I love about those is that part of the joy is that it will never be repeated again, that those people in that room that night, they're the only ones who'll be able to remember that riff or that person or that joke or that thing that happened. And everybody in the room has the same ingredients to enjoy it. And they're not half watching while on their phone or going out to get a cup of tea or stopping it halfway through to have a rest and then trying to pick it up again. It's a show. And that's what Dave was about. Dave was about tonight might be the best comedy show you've ever seen in your life. Now, so when he when he died way too soon and, and way before the the great success <laughs> that he should have had, uh, I was just thinking about ways that I could honour him or remember him, you know, because he had been incredibly kind to me and we had become a lot closer um, uh, when he'd been sick. You know, like the, the, the comedy community is an incredibly generous community, particularly when people are in trouble. 
you know, the first people to organise bushfire benefits, the first people to look after somebody if they're, you know, sick or, or need our help. And so when Dave was sick, you know, we rallied around a bit and Dave and I yeah, probably became closer than we had been previously. And, and when he died, I was just like, how do I... How do I, you know, how do I honour this? And so Dave, Dave's uh, intro music was Back in Black by ACDC. And so I decided that I would adopt them with the permission of, you know, his family, um, that I would adopt his intro music as my intro music. And the reason for that was that I just wanted to, I actually for a while, <laughs> I'd forgotten this until I started telling this story, but I remember at the start, I used to write on my hand, uh, yeah, WWDGD, uh, what would Dave Grant do? Like, because that idea of like when you're backstage, you know, often when you're doing a long run, you know, particularly a festival, 20 shows in a row, but, uh, but you know, any type of run, any type, the yeah, comedy is like any other job, you know, some days, you know, even if you have the best job in the world, you're like, oh, I've had a busy day. I probably would prefer not to work tonight if I didn't have to. But Dave never had that attitude and I wanted to make sure that, I could be reminded of not having that attitude. Never phoning it in. Never phoning it in. Yeah. And so when I hear that music, that's my reminder, you know, that I should honour the memory of Dave by, you know, gigs will go well, gigs will go badly, but I'm not going to phone them in. I'm going to try to make tonight the best possible experience that people could have. And then it becomes quite a pivotal moment in when I get arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga and I end up having to do a show that night straight out of, you know, being interrogated by the police and locked in a cell. That music becomes incredibly important on that night in that moment and that's that that bit that then became actually not only the music that opened the show but integral to this show and this story itself what an incredible story so it's a trigger to get the best out of you yeah and the, the, the thing uh, and now though but when i hear it on the radio or if somebody plays a bit of it i do have stop a, performing i have a pavlovian <laughs> response there is a little bit of me like hang on is that me am i on <laughs> the, the the song it it's like a double tribute. So you're using it as a tribute to, mm. to Dave, but that song, I didn't realise this, was written by Brian Johnson as a tribute to Bon Scott. Mm. And like you said, it's got the greatest. I mean, it also is great intro music. Yeah. Like, it's a great <laughs> way to start a show. I'm going to come on to your third choice, and I am really grateful that you are the first person that is adding a Stevie Wonder track to the Five of My Life Spotify playlist. Uh, it's from an album that I have discovered. Elton John, Michael Jackson, George Michael and Prince, all independently and separately uh, nominated as the best album ever recorded and their favourite. You think, wow, yeah. an album I had not listened to. I know lots of the songs are it, but I had not listened to that album in full. Uh, it's Songs in the Key of Life, uh, and you have chosen the first track, the remarkable, gorgeous, wonderful Loves in Need of Love Today. My brother ah, and I okay. bought it, and I knew every lyric. And having been so um, affected by To Kill a Mockingbird, for me to discover someone who was blind that could see so much, that could comment on those same issues of race, um, and that could do it in a capsule that's so optimistic, you know, like 
really service the difficult medicine in, you know, a sugar-covered capsule. You know, his his music was so optimistic. Um, and, yeah, when, when I read those lyrics, I was astounded at how much power, you know, art can have. You know, um, the book did that for me and this album did that for me. And I thought that it was like a mandate that anyone that would go in the arts would need to express however it came about, however, it, you know, its genre or, you know, what, what the um, bells and whistles were, something of some importance to comment or to shift or to expose something that was important. You know, I'm worthy by nature. You know, I thank God for comedy. I'd be unbearable without it. Um, but I see life as pretty bloody important, you know, and, uh, and I take it very seriously. And if it wasn't for my sense of humour, I don't know, I would be very alone, put it that way, uh, <laughs> unknown, broke, and <laughs> hating myself. So I thank God for artists like that. So th- there's something in that song that I, I mean, I mean he's, he's just a, a genius to write, you know, Sir Duke and all those wonderful, mm. uh, just incredible, on one level, they're amazing to listen, dance to, blah, blah. But the, the notion... Love's in need of love. You go, it's such a profound thought where for me in my life, I, I, I'd like to think that I don't cause anybody any harm and I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully got good morals, et cetera, et cetera. But what that song is saying is, you know, no, you've got to go one level further. You have a responsibility to do something, to be proactive, rather than just not be a lawbreaker and cause problems in your family and be a nightmare, which I think is is an achievement to actually reach that level, because most people aren't. But but no, to go further, love is in it. You need to do something. And yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to to hear you talk to that in terms of your art, because I, th- I, think, I, I think you do more than just give people a fabulous belly laugh for two hours. I, th- I think you put a little drop of goodness in the world. Well, we know that, you know, like we've had to analyse what happiness is, um, which is weird considering how good so many of us have it. And by that I mean living in a free country um, that, you know, uh, that's a mixture of all different types of races and, and for, for much of the Western world that is lucky enough to be free and to, to have the right to an opinion, you know, we've got it good. You know, our starting place is pretty strong. but. We know that one of the key pillars of happiness is service, being of service, you know, uh, devoting yourself back to your community and having some purpose. Those two things, apparently also a very good bowel movement and eight hours of restful sleep. <laughs> those In are the, what order? <laughs> actually, those other two things, those last two things seem to be one and two, <laughs> which we understand at that time when we're having that experience, when right. we wake up rested, we're like, wow, I can do anything. <laughs> when we walk out going, wow, I mean, how did that happen? Um, but uh, so, yeah, you know, all my themes come back to several things that I cannot let go of, which is um, how I was strengthened by... Uh, a very dynamic, honest, um, inclusive community in the first 10 years of my life and how I've devoted myself to giving back to that community and and how comedy is, you know, intravenous when it comes to, you know, um, making points or bringing joy or uniting people. And so I was able to, everything that I've touched in my life that has touched me, shaped me, 
whether it's university, going and studying performing arts, um, that being my major, studying anthropology, psychology, journalism, all of those things I've been able to plat together to create the life and the work that I've wanted to do. Um, Effie's been the biggest gift, but also could I have gone off and done a million other things? Perhaps, you know, and, and I've done many other things outside of that character, but it's that character that allows me to infiltrate all these different stiff, uh, politically correct, uh, corporate um, community places that require, you know, some form of perforating, you know, um, some um, to put that character in that reality to say, I deserve to be here as much as anyone else, not more so as much as anyone else, whether it's me doing the, you know, the midwinter ball in Canberra, which is the biggest corporate gig of the year, a couple of times, uh, whether it's any other sort of elite um, reality, to go in there with this character and to make a mark and to be, you know, the people's buffet, the voice of the of the bogans, the wogs, the suburban people, the, you know, is, is really um, something I can't imagine I could have got a rush out of more doing something else. <laughs> We're going to move 400 years uh, into the future, yes. the 1960s, uh, and we're going to add to the Five of My Life Spotify playlist uh, the Joe Cocker version of With a Little Help from My Friends. I'm tired, don't you say it no more. your story, Julia? Look, I love the Beatles. You know, Beatles or Stones? What about you? What do you, Nigel, if I say Beatles or Stones? Uh, well, are you in that camp? Trouble, so non-drinker, dull Nigel, Beatles. But oh. yeah, well, see, but why are the Stones considered the, yeah, the dangerous ones? Look, Beatles for me, there's just something about their harmonies and something about, you know, I love the Stones too, not saying. But, um, but you've chosen the Cocker version. Yeah, I've got, I have, I know, I know. Because it's not as, um, Sickly sweet and is upbeat. It's kind of bluesier and rockier, and and I love Joe's voice, and I've always loved that song. And then when Rockwiz turned a hundred episodes in, and we ended up doing about two hundred for TV. I mean, we really were the little show that could. There is just no way that show was going to make it, except we found this fabulous cult audience on SBS, and they followed us. So the hundredth episode. The team decided to do, with a little help from my friends, Cocker version, with Dan Sultan and Ella Hooper singing it. And we had Ash Naylor from Even just rocking on a guitar and the band, Pete Luscombe, James Black, Mark Ferry. We had the Wolfgram sisters doing um, backup vocals. The room was packed because we filmed at the SB Hotel in St Kilda in the Gershwin Room. We packed that room out. And it, we always have little goosebump moments there. But this was really goosebumpy and a real landmark for us to go, a milestone, I should say, that we got 100 episodes in. It's Dan at his absolute finest and Ella at her absolute finest. And it was a true celebration of saying this show is about this family that we are now, these friends that have become family. And um, whenever I hear it, I, I get taken right back there. I am um, obviously for for this. I, I went and found the footage of that performance, uh, and I watched it 
literally five times in a row. Oh. Uh, and my wife said, what the hell are you doing? Because it, obviously she could just hear, you know, the same bloody song. Uh, but it, it's it's electric, oh. even just seeing it on a small little laptop screen, because there are some times, it could be a game of rugby, it could be a business meeting, where everything works. And, and what are they called? The grammar sister, the backing singers. The Wolf Graham sisters, Holy yeah. Holy yeah. guacamole. So yeah. I, I looked at, I mean, I'm getting sort of goosebumps now. Yeah. You go, to have been there at that moment, it's like I saw, you know, the very one of the very first Smiths concerts, and you go, wow. never be taken away from you he had the gladio lies stuck in his pocket blah blah he's, I wish I'd been there for that hundredth yeah. episode because they were both and you could see he he's clapping his hands yeah. at the, he, he's sort of overexcited but in a way that works I'm so glad you noticed that's one of my favourite bits in it too <laughs> and, and he's so in his zone and Ella's who she is you know I think what's great with music is when you can let people just be do what they do in their own space in a song and the Wolfgram sisters, all three of them were there. I mean, when sisters harmonise, are you joking? I mean, of course. Are they actually sisters? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not just a name. No, no, no. They are sisters and uh, very musical and they've been with us from the beginning in, in in different ways. And, yeah, I just it's just such a great song. And I think, too, you know, it, it's about leaning on people. But I think just the, the Cocker version has some ebbs and flows in it, some climaxes that go and then go again, then go again, and you're just like, and then there's drums in the middle of it. It just takes you on this very physical journey. And um, if I could sing like Dan sings, I would sing it like that also, but I cannot. So I, I, I just enjoy it through him. I live it through him and through Ella. So, so in the Beatles version, it's actually Ringo that does the, the vocals. Oh my God, it is too. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Five of My Life, presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Our producer is Mandy Coolen. Theme music is thanks to Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. I hope you enjoyed that compilation episode. If you want to enjoy the full chats with these guests, please check out our back catalogue where all of the conversations are listed. Listed.